0: This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow, way right! Oh, it takes a, a hop off the path. Positive.
1: You gotta be kidding me! Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill, one hop up and bite, and it's
0: in. Kind of like that. I would like to welcome three-time PGA Tour winner and the winner of the U.S. Senior Open, Olin Brown, to the Sub-70 Podcast. Olin, thanks for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Great to be with you this morning. Well, overall, how's your game feeling this year? What are you sort of working on? Um, you know, a lot of majors coming up this summer for you guys in the Champions Tour. So um, sort of where you're at and where do you see yourself kind of going this season?
1: You know, it's a, it's a, always an interesting question. I don't think you'll talk to any golf. Will look you in the eye and say, "Yeah, I'm firing on all cylinders. I'm ready to go." You know, Tiger Woods, you know, routinely tells you he's playing great with his C game, or the results are okay with his C game, or his B game, or whatever. Um, we're never satisfied. You know, I, I'm doing some things that I didn't do well last year. I'm doing some better things, and I'm struggling with some other stuff. A Short game is always an issue. I'm always trying to get better with that. If I can have a good week rolling, rolling the putter, I'm gonna you know, I'm going to have a good week. So those are the things where I kind of channel my energy and try and focus. And that's how things
0: have been going this year. You had a uh, tie second at the Chubb uh, classic earlier this season on the champions tour. That was a crazy Sunday. You kind of bolted up the leaderboard early, jumped into the lead. And is that excitement or in the mix on Sunday after all the years you've done this, is it still as exhilarating as exciting as it's ever been?
1: Well, you know, it's, why we all play uh, to be in it when it matters. And, you know, you don't always get the results that you want. <laughs> Obviously Uh I, I was in control of that tournament. I let it get away a little bit. Um this the wind on the last hole and hit, hit the ball in a, in a spot where I just, I couldn't get out from under it and I ended up messing up and getting into a playoff. But, you know, you can't, you can't fault yourself for the effort that you make. You know I mean? It's one thing to hit a bad shot. It's another thing to make a bad decision. Uh, and it's a third thing to, to kind of process information and have something change in the middle of the shot, you know? And so, you know, when all those kinds of things converge at the same time, you're going to end up messing up and making a, making a number on a hole. And that's kind of how it happened. You know, I was, I to a couple of guys after the tournament, guys whose opinions I value and, and, uh, who are watching and, uh, you know, and the consensus is, Hey, you know what? Sometimes golf happens and that's a fact. Um, so I'm taking that as a, as a real positive because what I did, what I did on the last 27 holes there, that tournament was, I hit, I hit the ball solidly, but I also, I hit it, I hit it close and I took advantage of, of doing that. So my putter was working, my, you know, my process was working and, and uh and my swing was working so those are good things and you know we've got a long season uh it's really really hard early in the year on pga tour champions to to get in any kind of a rhythm because there's so much stopping and starting you know we've only played six or seven events this year uh and it's pushing it's pushing into may at this point the guys on tour have already played double that or or more and, uh, you, you know, you have a week on and two weeks off and two weeks on and two weeks off. It's really, really hard to build any momentum. And just like any other sport, momentum is critical.
0: What is ideal? Is it is it for you, is it three weeks in a row, two weeks in a row, four weeks? Well, if you can get into that rhythm, what, what does your body feel good with, your mind feel good with? What's that flow in an ideal situation? I think it varies, you know. I mean,
1: sometimes sometimes good play comes unexpectedly. So the first tournament that I won back in 98 was Hartford and and I had been out on the road playing a bunch of tournaments, the U S open in Chicago and, uh, Kemper and stuff like that. And I was really fatigued. I missed the cut by a mile at Chicago. Uh, the U S open takes a lot out of you. It's such a hard tournament. It's the course is always to the max and You know, I was debating whether or not I was even going to go and, and, you know, I, I was fatigued the whole week. I had, I had uh, a sinus infection and I ended up winning the tournament. So there's just, there's no way of certainly for a guy like me to put my finger on, on what it is that, that helps me play my best. Um, I like stringing together a few tournaments, especially if I'm playing well, because, you know, that momentum carries over week to week and, uh, you can get you can establish a rhythm, get into a kind of a, a routine, and and take advantage of that. Now, if you're playing poorly, it's really nice to be able to go go home, put your clubs away for a few days, do something else, and get a fresh perspective. But I, I just think I just think it varies, and I think that's why we work so hard. um You know, we're all we're all in our fifties, and some guys are in their sixties, and. Still on the, I mean, Tom Kite's on the driving range every day, all day long. He's 68 or 69 years old, and he's working as hard as anybody out there because he still thinks he's going to figure out how to do it better. So, uh, you know, he's a marvel.
0: Yeah, it's funny to say that. I got to spend an afternoon kind of with him by accident at the uh, Senior Players Championship outside Chicago last year. The Champions Tour gave us media credentials. And he just let us walk with him. I can't believe the effort and what he was thinking about and he's still out there with a smile. I mean, you can just tell it's still joy. But it was one of the most educational afternoons I ever had with a golfer of asking him, what does he see in this golf course at Exmoor? What's his process? Absolutely amazing of things I never thought about. Low points in the golf course and how he's going to go out and attack it. And then when we left that night at 630, he's out in the driving range beating balls afterwards. His Last guy on the range. Too, unbelievable. You know I mean? he, yeah.
1: His commitment is extraordinary, and and uh, there are a lot of poo pooers out there, you know, that look over there and go, "Look at this guy, He's sixty nine years old, and he's, I mean, g- you know, go do something else." And you know what? Th- that's not how he's wired. His wiring is, I'm, I'm in the Hall of Fame. This is the mentality that got me into the Hall of Fame. I don't have, you know, as much time left as I would like. I mean, Tom Kite wishes he were going the other direction. He wishes he were Benjamin Button, right? Because his commitment to the game and to improving himself and his ability to compete are off the charts. And that's the, the, those are the things that got him to that level and have sustained him over a course of a, it's a really, it's a, a 50 year career. Uh, I have great admiration for guys like that. Uh, and you know, he truly loves what he does and he truly loves the game of golf. And it comes out when you talk to him, I play practice rounds with him as much as I can. Uh, I really enjoy his company and, uh, and he's just one of those kind of guys that's immersed himself in the game of golf, and he's doing everything that he can uh, to make himself better
0: and to leave a legacy that other people would look up to. Yeah, right. I mean, we just have this little podcast that we do, and he, you know, he doesn't know me anything, and he invited me and uh, a buddy of mine like into the ropes with him, and just like, yeah, come walk with me. And of course, we left him alone when it's time for him to do his work, but we're just walking and chatting. Like you could see him telling us what he's seen was not, lab, you know, it wasn't labor for him. He was. It was joy of talking about the game of golf. And what he's, I mean, it was, I was like, he is one of the coolest guys in the game of golf I have ever gotten to meet. And he was just world-class, everything you could imagine of spending some time with Mr. Tom Kite. Absolutely fantastic of, of you know, what his mind sees and what he still does. And by the way, he still plays really good for almost 70.
1: Oh, no, listen, this guy's for real. And uh, by the way, think about what a great game golf is. When a, a Hall of Famer who is currently comp- competing, there's no other game like that. Uh, that not football players in the Hall of Fame, a lot of those guys, a lot of those guys are really hurting. Baseball players too. Nobody else. tennis. You need an opponent. You, you can't play tennis by yourself. But in golf, you got a Hall of Famer inviting you guys inside the ropes. To share with you the things that he does that are identifiable as markers of his excellence during the course of a 50-year career, I just think that's an extraordinary—it's an extraordinary component to an extraordinary
0: game, and it illustrates how truly great the game of golf is. I, I could not agree with you more. Right? For us, it was like you know, if you were a baseball fan playing with Ernie Banks at Wrigley Field, right? Like we got to walk with Ernie Banks at Ernie Banks
1: while, while, he could, while, he could, right. while he could
0: still play it, it, exactly and it's not like Tom Kite can't play right I mean Jay right. and I were like holy cow like he would just drum me you know and I'm a pretty good player at 70 he would drum me like he's good
1: he's still hitting it out there 275 yep. he's still hitting it crisply you know <clears throat> Tom spends his time working on his putting because that's you know that's the thing that makes the difference and but boy I'll tell you what his range work top-notch, and his ability to deliver the strike, top-notch. And you can't say that about a lot of other guys.
0: Yeah, it was a Certainly a big, not, It is it? No, that's what I'm saying, right? I mean, if you saw the way he hits it, you'd be like, yeah, he's 56, right? I mean, he's he can still play. He can 1,000% okay. still play. Uh, speaking of your game in your 50s, is there anything you do – now in your career, or say through your fifties, even better than you did in your twenties and thirties. Is there any components that have actually gotten better with time? I suppose you know you lose a little bit of the edge, and I'm saying that in a positive, not in a negative. So
1: you know, I don't, I don't get bent quite as quickly as I used to um, if things go sour. Now I can still, I can still, I can still get heated out there, but, but the truth is, is that maybe. My uh, maybe my edge has been tempered a little bit, so that I, I'm willing to accept some things a little bit more readily than I was before. I mean, I think I think that guys who play this game, especially it's a look, it's an individual sport, right? Golfers are basically self-starters. You know, you have to have a little bit of an edge to you, you have to have a little drive and a little push, and sometimes that manifests itself in in uh you know irritation or or uh i don't know if I'm nailing it down right now, but I guess I'd have to say that patience is a little bit more uh, a factor in my approach to what i'm doing i don't expect some of the things that I expected when I was thirty years old um, on the other hand, you know the game the game is so is so challenging that that you know you learn the hard way through your experiences, what works and what doesn't work. And you try and take that, you know, with you along the way. And and those are the ways that you improve in the long run.
0: We kind of talked about this with some guys like, you know, Tom Kite still just working their rear ends off out there, but the vibe on the champions tour, is it a little bit more relaxed than it was on the PGA tour? Is it another glass of wine with dinner or, you know, is that a facade and the reality is you guys are out there, working as hard as you've ever worked to stay competitive on that tour?
1: I don't know. I, I, I don't think I really need to answer that question. I think you already know the answer. I think, you know, I think there are people who would like to advance a story that the Champions Tour is is this uh, chummy get-together. And, you know, it's guys who have known each other a long while. And in a lot of cases, they went to school together, competed it in junior golf or whatever. And there's certainly an element of camaraderie out there. But there is on the tour. You've seen it with the young guys now, too uh but the but the window of opportunity is closing, and everybody who gets to the champions tour understands that, so when you're twenty five years old, you know you're not thinking about you know your sports mortality, so you're not worried about uh, you know your window of opportunity. You get to the champ tour, it's like a new lease on life, but boy, I'll tell you what that window's about ten years, and if you're extraordinary, it might be fourteen or fifteen years. You know, if you're Hale Irwin, who's seventy three years old who's still playing occasionally, or Tom Kite, who's gonna be seventy or whatever, Tom Watson, those are the guys who are, you know, the one percenters of the one percenters, right? I mean, those guys are the elite of the elite of the elite. So I mean I think there's I think there's an appreciation, let's say, for our ability to continue to compete at the highest level. And by the way, Champions Tour is widely disrespected um, in the sports world for how good the guys are. I mean, there is, like I said before, there is nowhere else that you can go out and watch current Hall of Famers competing at at that level. And there's an influx of fresh new blood every year because guys are constantly turning 50. And the battle, you know, you're waging against Father Time to try and stay current. And be able to stand up against the new guys coming out, you know, the longer hitters and the, and the guys who had these incredible Hall of Fame careers on the PJ Tour, which is pretty t- tall order. So uh, the idea that everybody out on the champion's tour is just yucking it up, having a good old time and having an extra cold one at the end of the day, it's not really very accurate. The guys are out there grinding, working our butts off and, you know, want the thing to last as long as possible.
0: Yeah, and I kind of, You're correct. I knew the answer to that after seeing it, especially up close. And you can't play at the level you're played at. But I figure for the listeners, you know, it's an interesting perspective because that is sort of the commercials and the facade. Obviously, if you go out there and watch it for a day, you know, the ultimate of that too, on top of Tom Kite was, you know, Tommy Armour III, who's, I love his game and he's got this reputation as a, you know, going out and having a good time. No, he was also still at the driving range after playing all day with Bernhard Langer when we left at 6:30, pounding drivers 300 yards down the range. So, you know, even those guys that you think kind of have this, you know, reputation, or at least probably back in the day, that they could go out and have a good time and still play good golf, grinding his rear end off. So I was surprised at how much time and effort, you know, all of the players put in for that day when we were out there. I kind of knew it, but I always figure it's interesting to ask your perspective of. You know, you, you guys are out there and doing it and how do you view it and how do you see it? And like I said, I, the evidence showed to me that there's a hell of a lot of work to go into play that level of golf. And I agree with you, by the way. If people think the Champions Tour is, uh, you know, a walk in the park, go play X More Country Club where VJ shot like 15 or 18 under par or whatever it was from 71, 7200 yards, set up for a major championship and go see how difficult that would be.
1: Yeah, what a a great course, too. You know, Exmoor, you mentioned this, it was one of the better courses that we played over the last, well, I've been 10 years on the Champ Tour now. And so uh, old Donald Ross layout, I mean, it's just a wonderful, wonderful layout um, with a lot of terrific holes on it. And uh, it was a real treat to be invited uh, onto their property and enjoy you know, the variety, those old school courses, they got dog legs at the right places. They've got short par threes. They've got long par threes. They've got par fives you can reach. They've got par fives that are brutal. Uh, it's just, you know, one of those kind of golf courses that has every shot, asks every shot in your bag. And uh, we, we, you know, frankly, they don't design them like that anymore. We don't play enough of them.
0: But anyway. But I didn't see what VJ shot that week. When I was walking the golf course, I thought maybe eight or nine, ten under might win this thing. Yeah. Well he by just, the
1: way, and, and he nipped he nipped Jeff Maggard by a shot. Me. I mean I right. think Mag shot fifty six or something on on Sunday. Um you know, it was a it was a shootout, it came down to the wire, and V J had to make oh well, he won in a playoff, didn't he?
0: Yeah. I mean, but the yeah, no, the so. scores that were shot, right? I, I mean, I'm a low handicap. There is no way I could come close to the tees you were playing to to break par. There's no way. <laughs> so, like I said, they don't. If the average person, I don't think, realize. I guess the point is, is, is the quality of play that you guys still have out there, right? They just yep. they don't it's until you good. see it and watch it, you know, of how good you guys still play. So, yeah, I was uh, I knew this, but to see it up front too was really interesting. So let's talk for a second. Uh, I have a question of how a touring professional kind of goes about equipment changes and, and how much time do you have to put into it before it goes in the bag and with new equipment of what Callaway has out this year, for example. I know you've been a staff player with them for a long time. How does that process work? And then once you see those improvements, how do you go about putting that in the bag and kind of, you know, what's your bag set up like this year? And what are you sort of seeing with the new equipment that you've been working with?
1: Yeah, so um, I've changed um, all the woods in my bag now that, to the Epic Flash. Epic Flash is the latest in the series of, um, of uh, Callaway Driver and Fairway Wood products. And really the, the Rogue last year, the Epic two, three years ago, and then the Rogue last year were both really good products. Um, But the Epic Flash delivers the same kind of ball speed, just not a little faster with, you know, kind of a user-friendly component. They're they're just much easier to hit. It's easier to find the sweet spot. It's easier to find going from one driver to the next, uh, you know, kind of consistency in ball flight and spin rates and so forth. And so I think that's a huge advantage when you incorporate the technologies that they've developed over the last five or eight years into one product. you got a better product, right?
0: Also there's always this golf ball component, you know, with it that the technology allows for, you know, the golf ball to be kind of, you know, matched up with the irons, with the wedges, with the driver. how is that process also looked at from your standpoint and how do you incorporate that whole thing into your game so you're optimized out sort of on everything that you're doing?
1: That's such a good question, Jason, because everybody's looking for optimum performance with the driver, but in reality you use the driver less than you know, fourteen times around, you are get you got four par threes, and you got uh, fourteen other holes, and on maybe two, three, four, five of those holes, you may hit a three wood or an iron off the tee. So, what you want to do is you want to build your performance from the green to the tee, not the other way around. And everybody's enamored with the driver; they're chasing optimal, right? When in fact, functional is what what we should all be working towards. So, I learned that lesson a few years ago, and I try and I try and find a ball that feels best when I putt, chip, and hit iron play, and then I match my driver to that. And that, again, is the advantage to the new technologies is you're able to do that now.
0: And it shows how important it is, even for the average golfer or the trained professional, go get custom fit for your equipment and go get fit for your golf ball as well and then try to right match that up so you can actually you know go out there and play your best golf.
1: Well, it's so important, and it's something that, that's not talked about a lot. Um, we're all just looking to hit it at 350 off the tee, and I wish I could, and if I could, maybe things would be different. But the reality of it is, is that, look, you want to be able to control, you want to be able to control the ball as much. You want to hit as you can. You want to hit the driver as far as possible, but you got to be able to fight it. You know, it doesn't do you any good to be a long drive guy who hits it two balls in play out of 10, and the other 10 are in the water or in the weeds, right? So let's find a product that delivers all the things that you want consistent ball flight, consistent spin, consistent departure lines you know trajectory and and uh direction and so forth and then when you do that and with the new technology and in particular with the separate flash i mean i think a lot of guys are switching to it you know uh people are finding uh an ease of doing so
0: well let's talk masters um we just saw one for the ages and you know you you won them in your 40s so you've been there with tiger did and you won on a real big stage in your 40s so first off you know, your your view of him winning a major in his 40s as somebody who has won, and where do you kind of rank this Masters in the, the history of the ones we've seen? Yeah, it's a great question. So
1: everybody everybody who loves golf or who's immersed in golf knows exactly where he was or she was in 1986 when Jack won uh, Green Jacket at age 46. And I think a lot of people really shared a lot of excitement. It was a lot of his enthusiasm also in Oh four when Phil Mickelson won his first green jacket with that massive leap that he, that he made on the 72nd hole. But to me, uh, this masters that, that tiger just won is the closest thing that I can equate to when Jack won in 86. I mean, the, the sounds, wow. reverberating around Augusta in 86 and and the hollering and the cheers and the and the crowds this year at augusta i think you know they're neck and neck and it just so happens that it's the two guys that are in the conversation for what's coming uh which is jack with the 18 majors and tiger trying to trying to run that down and i think i think it has less to do with tiger being in his 40s then it has to do because let's face it, Tiger's is fit as fit as—I mean, he doesn't look like he's in his forties; still looks like he's 22. Um, but it ha- has more to do with his comeback from what was, you know, widely considered as potentially career-ending um, with his back surgery. You know, I mean, the, you hate hearing the stories uh, about what guys go through when they get back surgery, and it, it ended Lee Trevino's career. And, you know, it cost a lot of other great players their their careers. So to have Tiger respond um, with all of the doubt, you know, and with him, you know, openly declaring in public that he w- wasn't sure how soon he could come back, if at all, and so forth. I just think that, you know, the stage was set. And then, you know, there was a perfect storm of stuff that occurred, in particular on Sunday. And I'll tell you this right now. Tiger won, <laughs> I hate to say it, Tiger won without his best weapon, which was the magic of his putter. Um, he missed a lot of putts inside of 10 feet, a lot of putts inside of eight feet on the week, and still won what is one of the toughest challenges, toughest courses in golf. Um, I, I think I think if we're headed to a, or, you know, kind of a new era of watching Tiger run up that leaderboard again. And I just like to say for the record, and I think I said it before, I said when I was doing some work at Golf Channel when this whole thing kind of started, all of these young players who dutifully look in the camera when they're asked the question, "What would it be like to have Tiger?" and they all say, "Oh yeah, we we want him to come back. We want Tiger. You know, he's the reason that I put." These they're blowing smoke because not one of these guys knows, because they're all 25 or 30 years old, right? The only guy who's been out there for any significant time when Tiger was at his peak is really a guy like Justin Rose. So all of these guys who are 25, 28, 30 years old and say, yeah, we want Tiger, bring Tiger back, they're blowing smoke because if, if the Tiger of yesteryear returns, these guys are all playing for second place.
0: Boy, his iron game was on. I mean, you talk about the putting, but more, man, that iron game looked. I mean, I think he was, what, first in greens and regulation. So he had a lot of looks, but the iron swing looks as good as ever.
1: Yeah, I think he hit more greens and regulation than any winner in recent history. So he hit something like 50, some 58 greens or something like that for the week. And more importantly, you know, it doesn't look like, uh, like he's necessarily hitting the shots where he wants to like for example on 16 where he cut uh, uh an 8 iron into the slope so it's playing away from the trouble and hits the ridge and doesn't come into the ridge hot because if you're playing a draw and it hits that ridge it could miss the green so he's cutting it against the against the ridge that kills it and it lands softly and then dribbles down almost goes in and he has a he has a three-footed for birdie but well, it was you know you didn't see anybody else whose ball didn't go in the hole, get closer than that. So he's hitting the appropriate shot for the moment. And, and and that's just, you know, it is great to see because, I you know, he's the best I've ever played golf with.
0: The other interesting thing I saw from the tee is – during these comebacks whatever, I noticed, man, if he had to hit the, the high draw, that one was tough, right? You could even just see the pre-shot routine and the tension go. I mean, you could even see it, right? And, this, the, you know, that week of the Masters, he could work the golf ball the tee both directions without much, without much problem. And then I he went, did. wow. Oh. I mean, he's on point, right? When he just wants the high draw and has it and wants to hit that little slider hard and, and let it go without the fear of going left, he had that one. And then you go, wow, this looks like all the pieces of the puzzle are starting to come together. Well,
1: uh, it, and it's been a long time coming. And we saw glimpses of it last year, but it was kind of incomplete. You know, there were there were deficits. And then he, at the end of the year at Eastlake, I mean, the galleries were just, it looks like the old days. You know, those old, the, the old footage where they 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 just dropped the ropes on the 18th hole or the 72nd hole or whatever and all the gallery comes rushing to chase him down the fairway. Uh I've never seen crowds like that at that tournament before. It was just extraordinary. And then you know, early in the season here, he played pretty well at the match play and you know, there were some but nothing that would indicate that he's going to go and be the Tiger Woods of old and and uh, I I still I still don't think that we've seen what he's capable of. Um, he's putting back together the pieces that have made him so great for so long. And, he, and he's, he's assembling this thing, you know, kind of methodically, right? So he's checking this box, and then he's moving on to the next thing, checking that box, and he's moving on to the next thing, checking that box. So all of these things are part and parcel of him recovering – what is you know uh, the greatest the greatest um, athletic career of my generation, now, you know the arguments, the arguments with Federer and Jack and you know they're there generational players in, in every sport. but I don't think anybody has commanded the kind of enthusiasm and respect um, and admiration whilst going through the highly public you know roller coaster of life that Tiger has lately and by the way he is the he is the athlete of his time you know like I said Federer is the greatest tennis player and and uh, Michael Jordan a basketball player and Tom Brady a football player and so on and so on and so on but those guys are essentially beholden to their opponents and Tigers Tigers playing against history I mean you could make the argument about Federer maybe but but those other sports, they're team games too, and they're relying on the team working together to achieve a common goal. And this guy is is a high wire act, and he's, um, you know, he was at the very top of the list before, and then he crashed to the very bottom, and now he's worked his way back up, and you know, he's the favorite in every nature coming forward, and probably every tournament. He's certainly he's certainly the crowd favorite when he shows up, and it's going to be, I think, a pretty exciting year.
0: I'm going to ask to put your golf analyst hat on on this one. So how do you like the new schedule with starting the year off with the players and then how the PGA championship has now changed to may and to have that series of what golf's now going to have for the next month in the playoffs. And then as a part two is your view of the players championship. Should that be considered a major championship? Okay.
1: So those are loaded questions all around, right? Um, I think that the new schedule affords epic level events every month of the year starting in March, right? With the players, you've got the Masters, PGA, U.S. Open, Open Championship. Um, surrounded by and intermingled with the World Golf Championships, the Invitationals, Jack and Arnie's tournaments, you know, the season-ending event, the, the uh, FedEx Cup and all that. So I, I think I think that from a from a delivery perspective, you know you've got you've got meaningful events uh, in a kind of an, in a in in a batting order, right? And I think I think that's probably a good thing. Um, condensing the year into that kind of a of a uh, program really puts a lot of pressure on the guys, and they're finding out. And you heard Tiger say it when he did his interviews last week that he's he's going to really because he was working his way back to form last year he's really going to focus on certain events so I think that puts a lot of pressure on players to be ready uh, but that's golf golf is a constant it's a moving platform you got to be on top of things to stay current right and to stay ready as it pertains to the players championship <clears throat> this is a this is a this is better for a private conversation because you know it's the only other tournament than the Masters that's held at the same venue. Uh, It's been 30 some years or whatever it is since what was the first year was 81 or two at Sawgrass. Yeah. Yeah, Somewhere Um, around there. And they've tweaked the course a little bit to try and make it uh, what it is. And it's historically the strongest field in golf and it's the PGA tours flagship event. So the problem is, is that, is that, you know, the players is trying to crash a, a four tournament party, right? There are four major championships. There have historically been four, whatever those four have been. I mean, you go back to the time of Jones, the four were the two opens and the two amateurs. And now it's evolved into, into the four that it is currently. Um, and history gets to decide the tournaments that become major championships, not individuals, right? And I think what the tour is doing is they're trying to put their best foot forward and put an identifiable monster which is Sawgrass onto the schedule with the identified best field in golf, and let history be the arbiter of whether or not that's a major championship.
0: Yeah, and I didn't mean to give like a, a you know I've just kind of thought over the years. Five years ago, I was kind of like I don't know I don't see it. I would actually be okay with it now. I think the course, in, in as good as the tournament was this year, is starting to really become iconic in the sense that maybe not even. You know, like, I know all the holes, but I'm a golf nut. Like, even the casual viewer, like, I know that golf course, and that's a great fit. You know, it has, so it's starting to have all of these elements that if, 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 whatever you want to call it, the golfing gods said, that's a major. I would actually be like, yeah, like, I'm okay with that. You get, you win that one. On that tournament, you know, in that golf course, with that field and that pressure and that magnitude of an event, it's covered like a major anymore. I guess I'm thinking the argument is sort of cha- – I think it's changing in, in the context that it is such a great tournament and such a big event. I'm okay with it. I, I think that is such a huge one to win, and um, my view is sort of changing personally on it of how much I really enjoy the players anymore and love watching – that back nine on Sunday. It feels like a major I, to me.
1: I, I think that there are a couple of things that need to happen if it's going to be considered a major. One is the other four have to accept it as such. And I think, I think that's where things get a little sticky because the more you invite, the uh, in, more, you, more you're inclusive, the more you diminish what you have, right? So five majors is a whole different number than four. Four, it's easy to peak. It's easy to, um, to, you know, rally around. It's easy for the four to collude. Um, you invite a fifth, now you've got a whole other set of, you know, you've got a whole other constituency, a whole other set of issues, a whole other group of questions, a whole nother, you know what I mean? So each major, for example, uh, invites the, the two Opens, the Open Championship and the U.S. Open. The U.S. Open, the winner gets 10 years coming back, gets a five-year exemption on tour. Gets a five-year exemption into the other majors. The Open Championship, you're exempt until you're 60, uh, with the same other exemptions. The, the Masters, you are exempt in, until they politely say to you, "You're going to play one more year, and then and <laughs> we're going to go from there." And then you just wear the green jacket and you become part of the part of the event on that side, right? But you get five years. You get five years into the other majors. The PGA Championship, you're invited back until you're 60 or 65. You get five. So you understand that is it is that um, there are exempt categories uh, for those four major championships that they kind of share and overlap that are that are part of part of the deal and until those tournaments for example say okay the winner of the players gets five years into our event instead of three the winner of, of the players get, gets to come back for until he's sixty years old instead of just you know what I'm saying so so there has to there has to be some evolution in eligibility that would elevate it in the players' eyes and in the public's eyes to to say, okay, you're on a level with. Um and that's just one part of it, right? Um, so I don't know. It's uh it's you know, it's an age old question. It's certainly a it's certainly an enormous event. It's the biggest person in, in uh tournament golf. It has a lot of cachet. Um, but, but I think, I think it matters less what we think as fans, than it matters what the other tournaments think of it and, and whether or not they're willing to embrace a fifth major championship, that would certainly go a long way to elevating the player status to that, to that level.
0: Yes, interesting. I'd never thought about down to that next level, right? I guess I was just, you know, from a, it's an, it's an interesting debate. It's, it's, you know, and it's, it's interesting for golf to have that debate, but you make some very valid points of the other ones are going to have to bring it into the fraternity per se to probably make it a realistic option. But we'll see over time what happens with it. Um, let's talk about your win at Hartford in 98. You know, you're 39 years old, grinding it up, and you finally get it done. What's that experience like of 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 hand you know being handed a trophy and, and doing it after all those years of mini tours and getting on the Ben Hogan tour and getting out there and then finally you know getting over the finish line that you know you've won on the world's biggest stage.
1: It's it's a great question. Um, I started playing golf later than most of the guys. You know, I was in my late teens and. Um, so there's a, there's a, there's a curve, a developmental curve. That's, you know, you can't bypass that. You can't circumvent it. You can't short circuit. Uh, it, It's just, the way it is, um, it, golf takes a certain amount of time to learn. And so, you know, if I had, if I had started playing golf as a junior, I, I might've got my first win when I was in my late twenties. I would've been okay with that. Right. But all things considered, um, you know it's a pretty it's a pretty satisfying event you know it's validation for the things that you that you believe and the, the way you, you work and your application and so forth and it's funny how the the moment is always less to me than the aftermath right so the aftermath is you know the moment is for example it was in a playoff i chipped in there are how many thousand 30 or 40 thousand people screaming around the green and my recollection is that it was deadly quiet, right? And then I look at the replay of it, and I go, man, the people are falling out of their seats and screaming and yelling. And it's just supposed to show you how tuned in you are or you're able to get sometimes. And so the moment is kind of surreal. Uh, and then the aftermath is a little bit different, right? So immediately, you know, you do the trophy thing and all that stuff. You go to the next tournament, and somebody's trying to beat your brains in the next week. So immediately the tournament's over and, you know, your buddies are patting you on the back and the guys who, you know, who have been on tour a long time, who maybe you've, you've looked up to or have offered you some counsel, they come in and they give you, you know, they, they share, their, share their hand in respect. Right. And, and that has meaning to an individual, but the import of winning that tournament doesn't, doesn't last. Until you look back and you go, somebody twenty years later is asking me, like you, uh, you know, what did it mean to, to win that tournament? And so, it just means that you know you're part of the history of that tournament and that you've done something on the tour that you set out to do, and um, and those kinds of things. But it's really hard to get caught up in in, in what's happening because everybody moves on from that moment so quickly, right? Uh, that that really taking time to enjoy or appreciate uh, what happened, it, 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 it's so fleeting that, that it almost just blazes by. It's like driving down the highway, you know, that's mile marker or whatever it is. And here it comes, there it goes. That's just how it is.
0: With the other two wins that you had after that, uh, you know, sort of validate the first one, now you're up to three wins. Does, it, does the wins at Colonial and Deutsche Bank, does it change in the sense of now it's, a little bit of a different experience when you're a multiple time winner on tour is the, is the surreal, as you said, sort of a surreal moment. Is it still the same or is it changes? You kind of, you know, you're winning for the second time and third time on the highest level.
1: Never really thought about that. Um, you always want to win again. Um, you know, uh, I've always been a look forward guy, not a look back guy. So like, I don't even know where my trophies are. You know, there's somewhere in a room somewhere or in a closet or whatever. It's not, that's not, that's not why I, I've enjoyed the game. I enjoy the game because of the process is so demanding and it, it, and it makes you sit up and take notice all the time. And any little glitch in the system can send the whole thing careening out of filter. Right. So it's great to win the tournaments, but the tournament, tournaments themselves to me aren't aren't their validation for the work ethic and the commitment and so forth but but they're just they're just part of the process you know they're they're what people see on sunday night uh or on sports center or there's so much more that goes into it it's more like a validation of all of the work and the commitment than they are a single moment if you
0: Yes and I can understand where you're coming from that that yeah you can't get caught up in looking at you know what happened in the past you you right that's next week there's another event you got to keep working and going at it but from a golf fans perspective I think it's 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 interesting and yeah I gotta, I got to bring up one more right I mean your major championship like you won a USGA big time event at Inverness Great Club historic did, did did is that one the sweetest of all of them that I'm guessing on the champions tour that's got to be the biggest one that everyone wants, correct? Like if you could have picked one to have for your major out there, is is that the one that you really, really wanted?
1: Yeah, on our tour, I think that's probably right. And you know, the fact that I let it wire to wire, that's you know, that's kind of a feather. And I played with uh, Marco Mira on the weekend, and it was a very compatible pairing. And we really distanced ourselves by the back nine on Saturday's round from the rest of the field. So it essentially was a match play event on Sunday. I mean, I had a two-shot lead on M.O. going into Sunday and a five-shot lead on third place. So, you know, the course wasn't giving up a lot. I mean, somehow I'd gotten to 15 under par uh, through three rounds, and it just, the course w- wasn't offering up many birdies, and turns out the only birdie that I made on Sunday was on the last hole. I made that 35 or 40-footer, or whatever it was. Um, But You know, any time that you win a national championship, you know, has special significance. And, you know, on the driving range at a Royal Seco when I was a kid uh, in school, and I'm standing up there going, 18th hole of the U.S. Open, you know, that's the one that that we talk about, you know. And so, um, again, the moment was very satisfying, but, you know, the (laughs) – People ask me if it was fun to win that tournament and go, the first three days were great. Sunday sucked. You know, I shot 64 the first round. I shot 68 or 9 the second round. I shot 65 the third round. I was cruising. It was easy. Saturday night, I didn't sleep. You know, I got a 3 o'clock, 2.55 tea time or whatever it is. You know, I'm wide awake at 3.30 in the morning. That's a long time to be with your thoughts by yourself, you know. and Fortunately, I had my wife with me, and she was able to kind of talk me through stuff and you know the the tension level rises during the course of the event it elevates every day you know by the time you get to sunday you know you can hear you can hear bugs having a conversation at the co- in the corner of the room uh, you know your your uh senses are all on high alert and uh you're a little twitchy and the whole deal right and so the biggest thing was Sunday when I finally got to the driving range. I was able to hit a couple of shots. A lot of that tension left my body because now I'm able to go to work, right? And there's nowhere to go. You got a two-shot lead. You play great. If you don't win the tournament, after all that effort, you know, hey, you've had a nice week, but you're adults for not finishing it off, right?
0: Yeah, you so, got all the pressure on you at this point, right? Like it's yours to win. Yeah,
1: you know, right. and you really and you really feel it, and. You know, it was, I, I got off to kind of a rocky start that day. I mean, you know, the tension is high, and, you know, I missed a couple of greens, and I made a couple of sick up and down uh, when I needed to. And then, uh, you know, something happened on the seventh green, and everything kind of quieted, and I was able to hit every fairway and every green coming to the house, and, and it, was just, uh, it was just one of those kinds of performances that, you know, I look back on now, and I'm pretty proud of it.
0: As you should be. That's that's a big one right there. Um, Ryder Cup. Assistant Captain 98, Zinger had a great plan. And a couple questions, the sense of you were an assistant captain with Zinger. And what does an, uh, an assistant captain, or like, I guess I should ask, what did what did Paul, what was the expectations of his assistant captains? What did you, you know, what was your responsibilities when you were there? And is there any other experience you've ever been through that's even close to being inside the ropes at a Ryder cup, especially on home soil.
1: Okay. So I'll address that question first. So being an assistant captain on the Ryder cup is the coolest thing I've ever done in golf. Um, because while winning tournaments is an individual achievement and winning the national championship is an individual achievement, representing your country in an international competition is everybody dreams about. I mean, think of it as the Olympics of, of golf, right? I mean, I know that the guys who were able to go down and compete in the Olympics hold that very, very high in their, in their, uh, you know, pantheon of lifetime experiences. Uh, Justin Rose travels with this gold medal and flashes it whenever he gets a shot at it. Right. I mean, uh, the truth is that it, that guy's got a gold medal and, you know, he played for, he played for free, didn't get paid. I mean, he's, his contracts and whatever, but I mean, there was no purse. But I wonder if you ask him the question about what's his most cherished prize. I wonder where it would fall. You know what I mean? So, the ability to represent your country. And by the way, I was just, I was just there, propping up guys and helping out and doing whatever I was asked. But still, like you say, inside the ropes and experiencing what is one of the most extraordinary competitions in all sports. Um, and it was just as much fun as I've ever had. And Zinger called it. He said, this is going to be the most fun you've ever had. And and it was. And the truth is, is that um, our, our guys, Zinger had this plan. He had this plan five or six years before he was named Ryder Cup Cap. He and I uh, talked about the things that he thought, what he how he felt like he could help uh, lead a team to victory, and uh, and it came to be. It came to be, and it was it was just uh, it was mind mind-boggling. You know, Sunday morning in the Ryder Cup, the first tee time I think was eleven fifty-five that morning, and we went in early to kind of dot eyes and cross tees or whatever, and at eight thirty or eight forty-five the stands by the first tee were full. So this is three hours before they're going to tee off. And the Euros are on one side and the Americans are on the other side and they're heckling one another and they're singing their national songs. And, I mean, I don't think any of them went to sleep the night before. I don't think any of them quit drinking, from you know, from day one of the tournament until that moment. I mean, it was, everything ratcheted up to a whole new level, you know, and, and just, uh, and then, <laughs> And then the guys start teeing off. And, you know, you've heard the stories, you know, with uh, Anthony Kim and Sergio on the first green or Boo weekly leaves doing his happy Gilmore, you know, and I was standing right there when boo was teeing it up and I don't know if anybody's ever touched on this before, but I looked at singer and I go, why is boo smiling? You know, Boo was smiling? He was premeditated. He was going to do that. So he strikes his tee shot and then he straddles his driver and rides off the tee. I mean, he was the he was kind of like the uh the court jester that week. Um and kept everybody loose and the team really responded. The K- Kentucky boys, JB Holmes and Kenny Perry played awesome golf. Uh that was part of my pod, you know, I had the the quote redneck pod with with those guys and people asked me all the time, How'd you get that pod? And I said, I don't know, early Christmas present, I guess. These guys were a riot and they had a great time and you know what? I know this, <clears throat> is that there was, there's been a lot of talk between the Euros about, you know, why aren't the Americans doing better? Because on paper, we look so good, and this and then the other thing. And a lot of guys had their opinions, and this and that. Yeah, they just need to have more fun was kind of the consensus. Well, when we were playing, well, we had a lot of fun. You know, nobody has fun when they're getting their butts kicked, right? So there were a lot of things happening that week, and there was a lot riding on that Ryder Cup, I think, because the Euros have really figured out a, a way to bring everybody into the fold and to make everybody, uh, you know, feel a huge part of the team. And there's this kind of wave. And, you know, the saying is the rising tide floats all boats, right? I mean, there's this wave that elevates everybody to, to the level of commitment and to the, and to the, you know, to the rise to the occasion in these Ryder Cups. And maybe we hadn't figured it out until that point, and Paul sure did. He had implemented his pod system, and he got it off uh off a show about the Navy seals and how they break down the the group into smaller groups and how efficiently those guys all work together. And you should get him on the show one time to talk about it because he really explains it beautifully but I mean there were so many things that went into it, and, you know there was a there was a rally, the pep rally the night before we started, you know, and uh everybody was there, and the the crowd whooping it up, and I mean everybody got really invested and really into what was happening. And the wave of emotion helped elevate everybody's play and carry, carry the Americans across the finish line.
0: You brought him up, and I was going to ask you about him because I miss this guy, Anthony Kim. I, I miss him in the game of golf. Um, the time you got to spend with him—any uh, interesting Anthony Kim stories? And gosh, he seemed like a player who was meant for the big moment, right? I would have loved to seen what his career would have looked like without all those injuries. And what was sort of your your take of being a you know, a teammate of his for that Ryder Cup.
1: Anthony Anthony was a force. I mean, he was dynamic. The kid was uber talented. Um, maybe as gifted a player, you know, as you could ever as you could ever identify. You know, along the lines of a Tiger Woods or a John Daly uh, level of physical ability. Bombed it. Brilliant short game awesome iron player um and a, and a real thirst for delivering in the moment so the guy was the guy was an elite physical talent and he had a hunger to perform at the highest level and uh i don't know what, what happened to anthony um i know that i know that the injuries kind of and that, and that can change momentum in a heartbeat right you start you get hurt and you start playing away from the pain and and your game changes. And so it's really unfortunate because he was kind of a transcendent uh, talent Uh, and just a fun guy to be around. You know, he loved life, uh, took it all in, did everything to the max. And um, I I just hope wherever he is now that he's happy and content doing what he's doing because the guy was – the guy was uh, the next great player and he flashed it um, and he was while if you could uh, characterize Boo Weekly as a uh, the kind of uh, the guy who kept things light in the locker room Anthony Kim was the guy who set, set the playing tone that week and you know he was ready to, he was like a racehorse you know you, he was ready to jump the gate and get right to the lead and and uh, you know, if it was a mile and a quarter race, he was going to run three miles, and he was going to win by five hundred lengths. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yes, so he, he had, had that. A kind of
1: energy and enthusiasm that you know you you can't fake. He he was ready to roll, and he was re- and you know the big joke that week was you know that he beat Sergio four and three or whatever it was, and stormed off to the neck. he didn't even know where he was in in the match. He was just he was just ready for the next hole, and he wanted to make another birdie. You know, he was that kind of player.
0: I got two more for you here, Ian, or two more questions for you. I'll get you out of here. Um, appreciate your time today, I really do. Um, yeah, good spending time with you. ESPN, you did you did golf commentary for them and in, in, in work. How did that come about? And did did you take anything away from watching professional golf and commenting on it that maybe made you a better player when you kind of you know got back on the golf course by seeing it on the other side? Um, the first tournament I did was the US
1: Open in 2011 that Rory won so handily at Congressional <clears throat> um, and I found uh, doing the digital uh, feed which is uh, marquee group coverage we follow one group for the entire round that you know, the, I, could, I could see the storyline just like playing uh, you could see the storyline develop you could see what the tendencies were for the day and and if there was a thought that that uh, that came into my head that didn't have room, I could circle back and get to it later in the in the round, the hole later, two holes later, or if the situation were to present itself again during the round. Um, but yes, anytime you get a chance to watch uh, the very very best, and it's not a snippet. It's not like over to you at seventeen, and the guy hits the shot, and you go back to fourteen. And it, you know that's jumbled and and uh, not disorienting, but it's not there's no fluid, fluidity to it, but anytime you can watch the guys go through the course of their round and lay out the strategy for the round, obviously um, there are little things that you can take away from that, 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 that can help any individual get better at, at virtually anything, if you know what you're looking for. Right. So the answer is affirmative. Uh, and, and I really enjoy that part of the work, you know, so I did ESPN for about three or four years and now I do Fox for the u.s open too and it's similar similar deal i, I enjoy it um you know th- those tournaments the u.s opens and the open championship those are played on the great courses of golf the ones that are historic generally speaking you know and certainly in the open championship where it's the lynx golf the carnousties and the saint andrews and the courses like that our u.s open even though we've gone to courses like aaron hills and so forth i mean it's still the Wingfoots and the pebble beaches this year and and courses like that and it's just a it's another way for me to uh kind of like reinforce my enthusiasm for this great game because you know uh, i i'm a professional i play it for a living but i'm also a fan and a, and a huge fan and i and i actually love the game of golf and i can see why a guy like tom kite is on the driving range at the age of 69 still trying to get better and uh and so we all find our ways to you know be included you know it's just like part of this crowd part of this great game and it's just a it's a privilege to be there
0: is the learning curve hard where i'm assuming you have a producer in one ear then you have to talk then you have to transition is it is it pretty darn difficult to make it come off perfectly smooth when all this stuff is going on around you in a tv broadcast
1: well i think i think it can be i mean the tv the tv component is certainly a little bit difficult because as i said it's not it's you're not following the one group the digital stuff on the computer you tend to be following one group and you know you might get to look. so the first time you sit down you say look uh this I'm new at this what do I need to, what do I need to do and the guy looked at me literally and said don't worry about it you'll figure it out and I go okay here we go um and you do and if you make a mistake they come on your on your headset and they go look you know don't talk over the shot or don't talk over the caddy and the player communicating or you know, let's say, I reinforce that that idea that you came up with about X. And so the learning curve is learning to synthesize what is important to the to the listener or the watcher, and and how do you deliver that so that, you know, it makes sense in the context of what's going on at the at the time. So, yes, there's a learning curve, but I haven't found it to be awfully challenging. And, and the producers, you know what, you get a reputation for hollering and doing this and that and the other thing. You know what, everybody's trying to put, put – the best product that that we can right and so it's never uh like a like a disrespectful thing or anything like that it's a it's a heat of the moment hey let's get this right we're delivering a product and let's make sure everybody enjoys what we're doing type of thing
0: last one i have for you uh your son olin jr is also a professional golfer so my first question is can the old man still beat the kid every now and then and then i have two boys so i'm a dad with this so i kind of always have wondered about this as, as my kids are still small. Is it hard to play dad and especially with the level that you've played at for so long, potentially coach as well? Cause you, you've been in all these experiences and seen all this stuff and does, does the son want to hear it from, from dad, even though dad has the credentials to, you know, speak up cause he has seen everything. How's that dynamic sort of work?
1: Yes and no to all of the above, you know I mean? Um, so, if I beat him, it's because he didn't play as well as he could play. I mean, these young kids, so tell them, they all hit it three hundred yards. They
0: all have yeah. great short games. They can all, you know, I mean, it's just uh, the, mo- the modern game, right? They just the modern
1: game. I mean, it's just right. it is what it is, and and everybody looks at me and said, Ah, if you'd have grown up with this equipment, you'd you'd be doing that. And I'm going, I don't think I would. You know, he's more limber than I am, more limber than I ever was. But he started playing when he was a kid. You know, I never had that advantage if i had been playing as a kid maybe i would have developed a a different skill set but um he's very receptive we work we work together a lot and uh he also wants to keep his dad at arm's length he wants to put his own thumbprint on what he's doing and it's you know it's a little bit of a of a tightrope um because yes i've seen some of the things that he's going through on the other hand, there are a lot of things that that you go through as a golfer that you. T- it doesn't matter what somebody else says to you; you have to experience it before you understand what it means. And so, you know, I try and help. I try and offer help. I try and back off when he asks me to back off. Uh, and I try and uh, I try and pump him up when he needs it, and I try and give it to him when he needs when he needs a talking to. Him. So, you know, those are all those things. But I, you know, it's very very difficult as a father to be uh, a, a kid's coach because because the kid can never have ownership of something if the father is always there. So, I mean, you see it in these tennis kids all the time, right? Especially with the girls. Um, some of the fathers are a little bit much and, you know, you know, they have to, they have to be removed by the federations or whatever. Um, you see it in golf too now, but, but it's, it's so important for kids to be able to stand on their own feet and golf. Golf is a funny game because, you know, you don't have coaching, on the 16th hole of a championship. There's you and your caddy. So your caddy better damn well know what you're doing and you better have a good understanding of what you're doing, but you can't look into the stands to get your, your coach to give you a tip at that time. First of all, it's not allowed. Second of all, the coach is probably 600 miles away doing something else. Maybe watching you on TV. It just, you know, you have to be able to take ownership for what you're doing. So the important thing about golf, and I think this is universal. Every single golfer, has to be able to fix a problem on the fly and has to do it himself. And so what you try and do is instill the idea that in a kid that he's good enough and whatever he does, he just has to find his own way and fight through on his own. You know, and that's just the way it is. It's a lot like life in that regard.
0: Well, Owen, I truly enjoyed the conversation today. You know, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Uh, you have a lot to, I, I knew it was going to be a good podcast. Um, You have a lot of great perspective of everything you've seen in the game, and I really, really appreciate your time, and thanks for being with us today. Jace, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I hope you'll do it again sometime.